all you delightful little ragamuffins. I'm John Miller, and welcome back to Everybody Trades. Thank you for joining me once again, and to all you newbies out there, hey, this is going to be a fun ride, so stay on it, no matter how bumpy it gets, I promise. I will get you to the destination. And here's the good news. I will get you to said destination, whether you have insurance or not. <laughs> yes, that's right. My very clickbait adjacent headline today was insurance is overrated. That's, that's a pretty good one, right? I thought that was a lot better than, say, people's risk assessment is skewed by their own subjective values. Yes, that would have been very wordy and very boring, and no one would have ever clicked on it. But my point is, this episode isn't going to be just specifically about insurance. It's even more specifically about people's relationship with risk, quite honestly. And frankly, how the relationship, how people's relationship with risk has been skewed over the years, and frankly, is way off of course. And what made me think about this was just a transaction I made a couple days ago. In fact, I bought a couple new tablets, some fairly cheap tablet computers for the Co-Motion Dance Studio. Yes, my wife and sister-in-law, they're a little small business. And hey, how about a little natural plug here? If you're into dance, if you have any young men or women who are into the dance thing and they're under 18 years old, well, hey, go to comodance.com and check them out. But quite honestly, we're filling up rather fast, so you better act quickly. But anyway, that aside, my point was, when I bought these two relatively cheap cheap tablets the other day, they were about $70 a piece, if memory serves correctly, maybe even a little less than that before tax. But anyway, when I checked out at Walmart... At the For these two tablets, bought them for the dance studio on their credit card. God forbid I pull out my own wallet. But I was then asked by the cashier, would you like insurance on these tablets for $30? Which, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure what the, the length of the terms were. I'm guessing it was two, three years. It certainly wasn't until I go to my grave. I'll tell you that right now. So essentially... What they were offering me on a $70 piece of technology was $30 worth of insurance for, let's say, three years. We'll go with three years just for the heck of it. Because, again, I'm sure it wasn't unlimited, but I'll be honest, I don't have the exact terms of what they were offering me in front of me. But the point is, let's just do some quick calculations here. You're telling me that I need to pay nearly 50% of the value for this tablet to insure it. How does that make any sense whatsoever? So you're telling me that there's a near 50%. When I say near 50%, it's because 30 is, while not 50% of 70, obviously, it's a huge chunk. It's getting up there toward 30, or just getting up there towards half and half. Let's put it that way. So you're saying it should be a coin flip over the next two to three years, whatever the terms are, that this tablet is going to break? No, here's my point. Every time somebody offers me insurance on a technical, on a piece of technology like that, I always decline because guess what? I'm going to live dangerously 
and I'm going to take the chance that this piece of technology is going to work or that it won't work. I'll take the chance either way. We're going to risk it. And frankly, that math makes a lot of sense to me. How many of you have ever bought an iPhone, for instance, that just stopped working or any piece of technology that suddenly just stopped working or didn't work as soon as you turned it on? Well, again, that's covered by a receipt. If something doesn't work out of the box, you're good to go. You don't need insurance for that. And especially a company like Walmart, which has a relatively and frank, frankly famously loose return policy, you don't need to worry about insurance for that. No, this is insurance is essentially covering you outside of the warranty, outside of the return window of a month, two months, however long it might be. So you're already kissing that part goodbye. That may be, frankly, your biggest risk. But just the idea that, oh, my piece of technology, my tablet that I just bought is going to stop working in a year or two based on something that, I don't know, just the, the product fails. Well, frankly, if, it's, if there's that likely of a scenario where the product is going to fail, I shouldn't be buying it in the first place. And under the unlikely scenario where the product fails after two years outside of the return or warranty window, or I accidentally drop it in my bathtub, which again, in my times of having these devices has never happened, but if you happen to drop your devices in bathtubs a lot, then I guess you have a different calculation. But I think for most of us, it should be obvious that no, we should just chance it. If we're just going to kiss $30 goodbye, why not just chance the notion that, oh, my device might get broken or it might break down or whatever? Now, again, my overall point here is the math on getting insurance on technology at the register, at checkout, that really doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And frankly, if that wasn't a really profitable venture for them, they wouldn't be offering it, right? Well, that gets us to what insurance is in the first place. Obviously, an insurance company is counting on the fact, and this is no matter if it's involved in auto, technology, health insurance, no matter what it is, in a free market, nobody's going to write insurance policies unless they think that most of the people are not going to cash in on said insurance policy, at least at a profitable rate for them. In other words... It's fine if one out of a hundred people that we've written an auto insurance policy, for instance, or let's just stick with the technology. If one out of a hundred people of the $30 per $70 tablet, if one of those people cashes in and gets a new tablet, well, I guess we're out the difference between the 30 and the $70 or we're out, we're out $40 essentially. But if, only, if that only happens one time, then obviously we've profited on the other 99 out of 100. We've gotten that extra $30. So clearly it's worth it. That's essentially insurance in a nutshell. You are paying someone else to take on your risk. But of course, as an insurance company, I'm not going to do that if I think that there's a high likelihood that everyone I'm writing an insurance policy for or, or enough to cause me to be underwater, we're not going to write that policy then. There's a give and take, correct? But again, let's get back to the auto insurance market. There is no give and take in that market. You're simply forced to buy auto insurance by the state. 
by the federal government, by the various states of this United States. You're forced to buy it. Well, that market is completely skewed. Now, obviously, there are inherent fundamental differences between auto insurance and me buying insurance on the tablet product I was discussing earlier. If my tablet goes bad, that's essentially my risk. My risk is not having the ability to use my tablet. Well, not only are automobiles typically more expensive than a tablet, obviously, and exponentially so, but there's also the risk of injury, not only to yourself, but to the people, your passengers in the vehicle with you, and to any other motorists and their passengers that, or pedestrians, bicyclists, what have you, that you might also have to hit. So yes, there is a higher level of risk there. But does that reality in and of itself mean that auto insurance is different than all the other forms of insurance that we freely buy? Should we all be forced to buy it? Well, again, think about how certain vehicles, they can be pickup trucks, by the way, but often all-terrain vehicles, for instance, don't have this same requirement because often you're just simply driving them in your own property and there is a much lower risk of running in to another vehicle a pedestrian on your ranch for instance that all makes sense right but the point is yes if you're then going to share the road whether we're talking about a public road or a private road then yes you're sort of sharing the risk with other people aren't you and i can definitely see how there needs to be a mutually agreed upon Contract, agreement, whatever you want to call it, where everybody who comes on to a road, again, whether public or private, yeah, there does need to be maybe some sort of insurance, a minimum insurance or whatever. That all I understand. But again, in my perfect world where we'd all be free to do what we want, again, keeping all private property rights in mind, the point is, is in that world, there, were, there always are going to be holdouts. And here's what I mean by holdouts. Yes, there are going to be people who decide, for instance, actually, let, let's pivot just a tiny bit. We all think auto insurance is very important to have to the point where the government requires us all to have it, right? Well, those of us who own homes Almost every single one of us owns homeowner's insurance as well because of how important that particular asset is in our lives. Because not only is it the place where all of our possessions for the most part resides, it's where we make our lives, we make our homes, we make our food, where we lie our heads down at night. Obviously, the home is extremely important by itself, but on top of that, it's also a gigantic asset for many of us. Even if we haven't paid off the entirety of our homes, for those of us who have a mortgage, it's still a liability, a debt that represents a large percentage of what your wealth is or is going to be one day when you ultimately pay off that debt and own the home outright. So obviously the point is, yes, it makes sense to insure your home from a catastrophic tornado, fire, whatever it might be. That makes perfect sense. There's nothing irrational about that. But the point is, is yes, there are people, the holdouts. There are the holdouts who choose, in spite of all the things that I just listed for you, not to have homeowner's insurance. And you may be saying, well, those people are crazy. 
I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you. But the real point is, the real question is, do the holdouts hurt the rest of us? Do they hurt the rest of us who have already decided to buy a homeowner's insurance policy? Do they hurt those of us who are in the market for a new homeowner's insurance policy? Well, the answer to that question is no. Not only do the holdouts not hurt that market, they in fact help that market. Because as any business can tell you, while the biggest business you can imagine, take Coca-Cola for instance. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there who drink Coca-Cola or Gatorade, which is a subsidiary of Coca-Cola, various different types of products, but there's always going to be people who do not drink or consume Coca-Cola products. Well, guess what? Coca-Cola has every incentive in the world, and by which I mean money. They have a money incentive to get those holdouts from Coca-Cola. And thus, their incentive is to make a better product, to perhaps make a cheaper product, the same product cheaper, to innovate, to draw these people with advertising, whatever it might be. The point is, is their incentive is, oh my gosh, we have to work harder to get the holdouts, the people who know, who do not currently consume our product. So naturally, if there's a certain percentage of the homeowners in this country who choose to forego insurance, again, that may be a foolish decision on their part that in the long run, when their house burns down in 10 years, they'll live to regret that decision. But again, that will all be on them. That will, again, will also have no effect on my house or my insurance premium. So again, the holdouts, we should actually owe them a debt of gratitude. Thank you for pushing prices down. Thank you for forcing these large insurance companies to actually compete for the holdouts, for the people that aren't giving them their money yet. These, this is a good part of the market. We shouldn't be complaining about it. We certainly shouldn't force people. We certainly shouldn't force the holdouts to buy something that they clearly don't want. And for the rest of us, it's just going to push up our prices, lower competition, and give us a worse product. That's all there is to it. You may say you're doing it for the holdouts' benefit, but it's all ultimately it's just going to drive again drive prices up and result in a worse product. And you know what? Even taking this holdouts concept to another level, taking it even a little bit further, think about the holdouts from various types of laws that are frankly unenforceable. Think about seatbelt laws to get back to the automobile. Well, every state in the union, as far as I can tell, maybe Montana's an exception. I don't know. You can correct me if you'd like. But certainly in Missouri, where I live, you're required by law to wear a seatbelt at all times. And yet, there are people in my life who are very I'm very close to in life who do not wear their seatbelt. And again, for years now, there's now a sensor. If your butt, especially in the driver's side, but even in the passenger side, if there's somebody's human buttocks is occupying that seat, there will be a constant ding, 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 a very annoying chime that goes off intermittently. Despite that, the, again, the holdouts from seatbelts are able, much to my astonishment, are able to power through that annoying sound 
and still keep the seatbelt off. Well, just growing up, my parents always just got me in the habit of putting on my seatbelt. So frankly, I don't feel particularly safe without it. I always put my seatbelt on just from pure habit. And also intellectually, I think, yeah, I actually think this does make me safer. I really do. But again, so does that mean the holdouts? What should I do with the holdouts? The people, the close people in my life who seem to refuse to put on their their seatbelts. Well, should I throw them in a headlock and imprison them until they change their ways? Uh, Probably not. Because frankly, I think forcing people, as much as I think it's sort of silly to not wear your seatbelt, again, my own personal subjective value, but their subjective values are different. And so for me to impose my subjective values on them, for me to quite literally, but really figuratively, put them in a headlock and put them in a cage. And I say figuratively because that is essentially what the government does. It's what the IRS does. It's what every arm of enforcement of government does. They, when it comes to subjective values, now I'm not talking about murder. Yes, that's not a subjective value thing, is it? That's you, that's you quite, quite obviously destroying my property my ultimate property, my body, without my consent. Again, back to consent, right? So if it's all about consent, even though my subjective values say you're silly for not putting on your seatbelt, I have to non-aggressively leave you alone and say, well, that's the risk you're taking. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. But you know what? We can live in this world together. I'm actually okay with that. But unfortunately, there's then the side, there's always this argument, the old cliche, better safe than sorry. You know, that's how I, again, that's how I feel about the seatbelt, but our own actions as human beings actually belie this idea that it's always better safe than sorry. And let me actually, again, let's stick with, let's stick with the cars for a minute, but I'll give you another side of the equation as well. Technically, we should all be wearing helmets when we're in our personal vehicles, right? Those of you who are NASCAR fans will remember that after Dale Earnhardt Sr. died at the Daytona 500, that the Hans device is now standard equipment on all NASCAR vehicles. You have to wear a Hans device. Well, wouldn't that Hans device make us all safer in our commercial vehicles as well? Obviously, it would. Obviously, wearing a helmet... Frankly, wearing a fire suit, installing a Hans device in every vehicle in America would, without question, make us all safer. But the problem is, safer by how much? And this is where I'm really getting at with this whole story here. Risk assessment. We do not need to spend all of our money and resources and time trying to eliminate every risk in life. And again, our own actions belie this idea of better safe than sorry, because otherwise we would all be wearing helmets and fire suits and installing Hans devices in our personal vehicles. Because that would be better. That would be safer than being sorry. And yes, in the moment where I'm colliding into a concrete wall, I might be going, gee, I wish, I might be sorry. I might be going, gee, I wish... I have that Hans device and helmet and fire suit. But, again, this is part of risk assessment. We've all decided that, no, 
that's too much money, number one, to install a Hans device in every vehicle. Now, if consumers as a whole demanded it, if they were willing to pay for the extra cost, then the companies would make it, without a doubt. But the point is, we've all decided we don't want to wrinkle our pretty suits and dresses or whatever our outfits are. We don't want to mess up our hairs with the helmet. We don't want to mess up our outfits with the fire suit. And as dumb as that may sound, if you're a better safe than sorry type, as vain as that may sound on an objective level, that's our subjective values. And that's what people have decided that they value in this very specific case over safety. And ultimately, I just want to point out that, again, you do not have to eliminate every risk in your life because there's an opportunity cost to every action. And again, take, let's take a different side of this. There's people who I know who I would genuinely, not really know, but people I've heard talk online, that sort of thing, who I would genuinely consider gun nuts for the following reason. And I'm going to make a distinction here because I am a gun rights advocate. I think that, that well-trained people, law-abiding people should own a gun, should be able to own a gun for self-defense. I'm all good with that. But then there's the people, again, I'm going to call them the gun nuts in this case, because these are the type of people you'll read on online who love to conceal carry and all that stuff, and they act like they need a gun. They need to carry it basically when they're on the treadmill in their house. They're down in the basement, they're running on a treadmill. It's like, well, what if somebody breaks in at that moment? What if somebody breaks in while I'm in the shower? What if somebody breaks in when I'm on the toilet? What if some, I mean, my point is, yes, all of these scenarios could happen. Somebody could break into your house when you're on the treadmill. It could happen. It could. And yet, despite this fact, I am not going to carry a gun with me while I run on the treadmill. Because number one, again, that, that gun's kind of heavy and it's going to be slapping against my hip. While I'm running on this stupid treadmill. So yes, while technically you're right, anything is possible, that doesn't mean we have to spend all of our time, money, energy, and frankly just our worrying, our emotional capital does not need to be spent on protecting ourselves from every possible risk in the universe, whether that comes from somebody possibly breaking into our house, from a possible car accident, from a possible health malady, or even, yes, breaking your poor little tablet. And with that, I'm going to get out of here on this episode of Everybody Trades. Thanks for joining me once again. I am John Miller. See you all next time.